Jesus said, if anyone intends to come after me and be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. These are some famous words, but most of us don't stop to think about what he's really saying. We assume things. That phrase, let him take up his cross and follow me, that's a famous phrase. Some people think it means to go hiking all over town carrying a wooden cross on their back. I've actually seen people do that. Some of them are cheating because I saw one cross that was no longer than three feet. Another guy had a huge cross, probably just as big as the one Jesus carried, but it had wheels on it. So I don't know what these people think they're accomplishing. If they're making a public statement of their faith, that's fine. I think that's great. But what in the world does this really mean, folks? If, key word there, if anyone intends to come after me and be my disciple, what does the word disciple mean? It's from where we get the word discipline, right? The word disciple means to be a follower, a pursuer, a student, one who subjects themselves to the discipline of the teacher. And that doesn't mean discipline as in punishment, folks, but discipline as in mental discipline, emotional discipline, practical discipline, focusing towards the aim of following and pursuing the examples and the teachings of Christ. So Jesus is saying, if anyone intends to follow me, as in follow my ways, follow my teachings, follow my example, etc., let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The Greek word for deny there means to literally deny completely and disown. That's why the Young's literal translation translates this to disown oneself. The Amplified translation says disregard himself, lose sight of himself, forget himself, ignore himself and his own interests, refuse himself. That's what Jesus means when he uses the word deny here. And where he says, follow me, the original Greek implies continually following. Now, what does he mean when he says, let him take up his cross? What does that whole statement mean? Well, Jesus has got through telling them that he's going to go to Jerusalem, be rejected by the religious leaders, suffer at their hands and be killed, right? He's told them that much. He also told them that he would rise from the dead three days later. But the key info here, Jesus is saying, you really want to follow me? Well, what am I doing? What's my example? I denied myself. I stripped myself of all my physical and material glory that was side by side with the Father in hyperdimensional splendor outside time. I got rid of all of that to become one of you. And since then, and even now, I've continually not said anything or done anything of myself, but only by the will of my Father. And that means going all the way to the cross to be killed. You really want to follow me? That's what I'm doing. So if you want to follow me, then deny yourself and pick up your own cross and follow me. See, this is a direct response, or rebuke actually, to what everybody else was thinking. They thought Jesus was here to fulfill Malachi chapter 4, which was an exciting prophecy. The wicked and the lawless shall be tread down and be ashes under the soles of their feet. Oh, that's exciting. That's what they thought was coming. They wanted to be part of that, but that's Jesus' second coming, not his first one. His first coming was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53, where in verse 3 it prophesied that Jesus was to be despised and rejected by men, to be acquainted with grief and sickness. Those who were sick and grieving, those are the ones who constantly made their way to him. Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5 prophesied that while he would bear our griefs, 
and carry our sorrows and pains, we would ignorantly consider him to be smitten and punished by God. And that's what the religious leaders thought they were doing. They thought they were fulfilling a righteous deed. That's why Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But then Isaiah also said, but his wounds would be for our transgressions, his bruises for our guilt. And by the stripes that would wound him, would we be healed and made whole? All of that's in Isaiah 53, folks, written centuries before Jesus is having this conversation right here in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus is trying to tell them, that's what's coming. That's why I'm here. But you know what I find really interesting? He's also letting them know how he's going to die. Earlier, he told them that he would be put to death at the hands of the religious leaders after going to Jerusalem. Well, if that's true, then they would have logically come to the conclusion that he was going to be stoned to death. Because that was how the Jews carried out the death penalty in the old law. Stoning was the death penalty. Crucifixion on a wooden cross wasn't part of the Jewish justice system. That was the capital punishment of Rome. That was the Roman death penalty. They would never have suspected that Jesus would die that way. But Jesus is ahead of the game here all the way. It was all mapped out before the foundation of the world outside time. He knows when he's going to die, how he's going to die, and who's responsible. Jesus hadn't told the disciples yet that his death would be on a cross, but he's letting it slip out here with what he's saying. I'm going to die and then rise again three days later. If anybody wants to be my follower, let him deny himself and take up his own cross and follow me. Now, folks, because Jesus is directly responding to all of the presumptuous followers, there's a hint of sarcasm in this statement. They think Jesus is about to take over the planet Earth, put royal robes on everybody. Well, if I was there and thought that's what's fixing to happen, yeah, I'd, sign, I'd say sign me up too. I'm, I'll be a follower. So Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he's wiping away all of those false presumptions. But just because it's brute sarcasm, it doesn't mean it's not true. Why did the world reject Jesus and put him on a cross, folks? Because the God of this world is Satan, right? That's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Who's the God of this world now? It's still Satan. If the world rejected Jesus then, then they're going to reject Jesus' followers today. And in most of the world, that means their very lives are at stake. In most of the world, the penalty for being a Christian is death. And where it's not a death penalty, it's ridiculed and it's mocked. Just as Jesus was ridiculed and mocked on his way to the cross. So nothing's changed. So Jesus is saying, if you really want to be my followers, this is what you're in for. This is what you have to look forward to. And he's not saying that you have to deny yourself to please God. That's not what this is about, folks. And he's not talking about your salvation either. It looks like it at first, but as we continue reading this, you'll see that he's not talking about what saves us. This is about those who are saved growing up. Not just accepting Jesus' work on the cross, but following him. Can you be saved and not be a follower of Christ? If you were to have asked me that some years ago, I would have told you absolutely not. Because if you're really saved, then you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, and that same Holy Spirit would be prompting you, guiding you, urging you to grow up spiritually. Growing up isn't what saves you, but if you are saved, growing up would be evidence that you are. That's the way I always looked at it, and I still do to an effect. But I'm starting to realize 
that from several places in the scripture that when Jesus comes back, when it talks about him coming back, defeats the Antichrist, puts Satan in chains, finally brings in the kingdom and all that good stuff. There are going to be people in the kingdom who are saved, but have zero rewards because they never grew up. Some of them are even excluded from all of the opening celebrations and parties because they chose the easy way out. They got their get out of hell free card from Jesus's work on the cross, but then spent the rest of their lives getting along with Satan and the world to avoid any discomfort. That's what Jesus was talking about in his parables of the sower and the four soils. The third type of soil where the word was planted, the seed took root and lived. So that person is saved, but never produced any fruit because instead of growing upward and outward, it got entangled and choked out by the thorns and the thistles around it, which were symbolic of the world. You got to get past all of that to grow. That's what Jesus is getting into here when he says, if you want to grow, if you want to be my follower, you got to deny yourself. You got to pick up your cross, whatever that, that means, whatever form that takes, and follow me. Because Satan uses the thorns and the thistles of this world, all the things that we want out of life, the stuff, the career ambitions, financial security, material wealth, self-esteem, all of that stuff. Satan uses that to keep us from being followers. If you had a choice between spending a weekend alone with God and a Bible and a weekend at the beach or a weekend at the boats or a weekend just at home catching up on housework and TV shows, which would you do? Now, is there anything wrong with a weekend at the beach or a weekend at home doing housework? No. But isn't it something? Isn't it interesting that there's always something that's more important? There's always something that gets in the way. That's not an accident. Satan set it up that way. You literally have to pry yourself away from yourself to get in some time with the Lord, whether it's prayer, carefully listening to him, reading his word. And the more serious you get about it, the more serious Satan gets about stopping you. Well, that sounds tough and scary. If that's what being a follower of Jesus Christ is all about, then what possible motivation would any of us have for choosing to be a disciplined follower? Jesus explains. He explains the motivation next. Let's keep reading. The very next verse, Jesus says the motivation is because whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit will a person have if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what can a person give in exchange for his life? Now, folks, right here, this verse right here is why a lot of people think that Jesus is talking about your salvation. They think he's saying, if you give up your life here on the earth, I'll give you your life in heaven. But if you don't give up your life here, then you'll lose your life in heaven. That's what most people think this means. But if you keep reading in Matthew's account of this conversation, Jesus then said, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in his father's glory. And then he will repay everyone according to what he has done. So this isn't talking about salvation. Is our salvation something that Jesus repays? No. And look at who's the recipient of that repayment. He said he will repay everyone according to what they've done. Is our ticket into heaven a repayment for anything we've done? No. The cross paid for that ticket. Is the cross Jesus' repayment for anything we've done? No. Did we earn Jesus' death on the cross? No. 
And besides, what Jesus was paying for at the cross was our sin. And the recipient of that payment wasn't us. It was the Father. Because he's the judge. It was the judge who demanded payment for our sin. So in this passage, Jesus is not talking about getting saved, folks, being saved or even staying saved, because our salvation is not a reward. It's a gift. But here, Jesus isn't talking about a gift. Jesus is talking about repaying, repaying everyone according to what we've done. When does Jesus do that? He said when he comes back with his angels in his father's glory. He said, what profit will a person have if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? This is not talking about whether or not we'll be there. It's about whether or not we're going to have life there. It's a big difference. Unfortunately, the King James and the English Standard Translation use the word soul instead of life. I've been investigating the ESV for the past several months, and I've been really excited about its accuracy so far. But this is the first mistake that I've found. You look up the original Greek, a more appropriate rendering in English would be the word life. The Young's literal translation translates it life. So does the Amplified. So does the ISV. You know the old saying, someone says, get alive. When people say get alive, they don't mean wake up from the dead. They know you're already alive. What they mean is get a life that's worth living. A life worth living, a life that's exciting, adventurous, fulfilling, gratifying, a life with meaning. Purpose, significance, a life that matters, a life that makes you wake up every morning as though it's Christmas morning. In the coming kingdom, Jesus said he will repay everyone according to what he's done. Well, if you haven't done anything here, then you won't be repaid anything there. You'll still be there. But if you haven't made any investments towards that future, then you won't be repaid anything. But whatever you've lost, or given up for him down here. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to forget that. I keep up. And I'm going to give it back to you up there. Well, whether I get it here or I get it there, what's the difference? Jesus told us the difference in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. He said, don't gather and store up for yourselves treasures on the earth, where moth, rust, and worm destroys, and where thieves break through and steal. Instead, gather up and store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust corrupt, where worm doesn't destroy, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So there's two big reasons right there, folks. Status, wealth, treasures stored up down here, they are going to be destroyed, either by moth or rust or thieves, in other words, the elements of life just living here. Everything goes from order to disorder. Everything falls apart. Nothing lasts. But notice Jesus included in that long list the worm. <laughs> what worm, folks? The maggot, a symbol of physical death. Even if everything you gained was somehow physically eternal, you're not. But treasures in heaven, they are eternal. And when you get there, you will be as well. People often say that uh, God is against materialism. Well, yes and no. He isn't against materialism per se. It's just earthly materialism that he's against because it's deceptive. It's consuming. It's a tool of Satan used to distract and above all else, it's empty. It's not lasting. But treasures in heaven, those are good treasures. Good material. 
given not by the world or by Satan, but by God. Folks, God created the entire universe. What in the world does God mean when he uses the word treasures in heaven? He's not talking about heaven itself. He's talking about specific material, things, gifts, rewards, things that he personally gives to individuals in heaven for what they've done down here in his name. And that's the second big reason, because where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. If your treasure is on the earth, if your treasure is your house, your DVD collection, your music collection, your career, your status in society, then that's where your heart's going to be. And folks, that's a sad place to have your heart, because your heart will always be broken if that's where it is. Because your house is not perfect, it's not eternal, your DVD collection is not perfect or eternal. Your career, your status in society can change in the blink of an eye. None of it is self-sustaining. You have to continually give up of yourself to keep it going. And it's never enough. That's a sad and desperate place for our hearts to be. But if your treasures are in heaven, what a place for the heart to be on a constant and continual basis. There's my real retirement. I'm going to be there forever and what I have there is going to be there forever. And folks, we often don't care about those riches because for some reason we get the idea that those riches will be crackerjack riches. I guess it's because of the verses that talk about us receiving crowns. First of all, we don't really even know what that means. The idea of a crown, as I think of a crown, doesn't excite me all of that much. If I had a crown down here made of solid gold and full of rubies and diamonds, the first thing I would do is sell it to the highest bidder to pay off some old debt. But we have no idea what treasures in heaven means. Because heaven itself, in our minds, is a treasure, street paved with gold. So gold isn't a treasure in heaven, it's street pavement. So if gold is street pavement, then what in the world is a treasure? What's it made of? What does it do? How does it work? And how will it be valuable to me in heaven? Folks, we have no idea. Down here, us guys like to keep up with electronics, computers. We love to keep up with the latest technology. Well, God gave to the angels some technology that the Old Testament describes as chariots of fire that move as swift as lightning. And that's just to the angels. What's he going to give to us when we get there, folks? Well, that all depends on what we've done down here. And that's what this passage right here is all about. It's not a threat against your salvation. And it's not a depressing decree of life as a Christian. Look at what he's saying. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in his Father's glory, and then he will repay everyone according to what he has done. What profit will a person have if he gains the whole world down here but forfeits his life there? Or what can a person give in exchange for his life there? Whoever saves his own life here will suffer loss there. But whoever loses his own life here for my sake shall save his reward there. And then Jesus said, according to Mark and Luke, he said, whoever is ashamed of me and of my teachings in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of himself and of his Father and the holy angels. See, folks, once you understand that this is not talking about salvation, then it all makes sense, doesn't it? People who are lost, people who are not saved, they're not ashamed of Jesus Christ. They don't know Jesus Christ. So they either feel nothing or they feel hatred 
because of what he represents. But being ashamed of Jesus Christ? Who's ashamed of Jesus? Well, you wouldn't think anybody would be ashamed of him, but there are Christians. There are Christians who are saved, people who have accepted his work on the cross. They're saved by his blood, but they are continually and consistently too embarrassed or ashamed to ever let anyone know. You know what loving parents think when their kids are devoted to everything but them? You know it hurts them. Well, Jesus feels the exact same way, folks. Those of us who are saved but worship the world. Jesus thinks, what has the world ever done for you? The world never gave itself up to pay for your sins. The world doesn't love you. The world doesn't care about you. But I do. So why does the world get so much of your attention and devotion while I barely get noticed? Except when after the world chews you up and spits you out. Then you blame me. You get mad at me. I didn't do anything. The world did that to you. The God that you worshiped did that to you, not me. So with all this, folks, let's back up and read again everything Jesus just said, since we now know the full context of what this means. He said, if anyone intends to come after me and be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever saves his own life here will lose it. He'll suffer loss of reward. But whoever loses his own life here for my sake shall save his reward. For what profit will a person have if he gains the whole world here but forfeits his life there? Or what can a person give in exchange for his life there? And then Mark and Luke report that Jesus said, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my teachings in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of himself and of his Father and of the holy angels. And then Matthew records that Jesus said, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in his Father's glory. And then he will repay everyone according to what he has done. Now, folks, this whole business of denying yourself, losing your life here so you can get it there. I'm sure if you're like me, there's a part of you that wants to think, well, why can't I get the best of both worlds? Why can't I be devoted to Jesus, do everything I'm supposed to do, and get everything up there because of my devotion to him, and get some benefits in the world here and now? Well, first of all, you can't have two masters. Jesus made that point in his Sermon on the Mount. You can't be devoted to two things. You can't do it. It'll split you in two. But what of peace and security here on the earth? What of benefits, the desires of your heart and stuff like that. Well, that is in Psalm 37 and other promises like it. It says, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. And I don't think that just means in heaven. I think that means here on the earth. But the reason why a lot of us read that promise and then disregard it is because we'll bring a desire to him. Time goes by. We don't get the desire. So we poo poo it. The fact is, the reason why we don't get the desire is because we're not delighting ourselves in him. It's tricky. It's just like Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount. He said, seek first, not second or simultaneously with something else. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then everything else will fall into place. Everything else will be added unto you. And that means the best of both worlds if you want to use that phrase. But here's the trick. If you seek first the kingdom of God so that you will be blessed here, 
It won't work. And the reason why is because you'll constantly be looking for evidence that he's blessing you here so that you can then make a decision. Well, am I going to keep seeking first the kingdom of God? And that's not the way it works. God's not stupid. And God's not going to bribe you to follow him. He paid for your sins because he loves you. That wasn't bribery. He did it because he loves you. It's a gift. It's a free gift. You just accept it. You take it. That's all there is to it. But after that, it's all about growing up. And a parent who bribes his children to grow up, they're not going to grow up. <laughs> that, 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 that doesn't work. But if you're lockstep in key with the father, he's going to give you the desires of your heart, not because you've earned them, but because he wants to give them to you. And because he knows that whether or not you get those desires, it won't change how you feel about him. See, if he has to give you a desire so that you'll love him back, then that's not really love. But if you love him in spite of whether or not he gives you any desires, then that's going to prompt him to give you the desires of your heart. Now, I just recently heard a sermon from Charles Stanley that really stoked up uh, some interest in me about all of that because there are some deep, deep desires of my heart that I've been praying about for a very long time. And there's a couple of things that took place that I didn't know had taken place. But at some point in time, I had come to the conclusion that my praying for those desires was getting on God's nerves. Nobody told me that. There was no Bible verse that told me that. Just for some reason, somewhere along the line, I started thinking, this is really getting on God's nerves. I mean, if he was going to fulfill this emotional desire, if he was going to fulfill this need, he would have done it by now. So for me to continually bring it up to him, it's just getting on his nerves and it's hurting my faith because the more I ask for it and the more time that goes by that it doesn't happen, it's hurting my faith. But folks, the opposite is true. If you're delighting yourself in the Lord, you will suddenly feel yourself no longer needing the things that you painfully pray for. The needs are still there. Don't get me wrong. The desires are still there. But the hunger for that desire, the empty hole that you may feel because of the lack of that desire being met, it'll start getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So what God's doing is putting everything in perspective. If he were to give the desire too early, then all of my attention would go to it, the desire, and it wouldn't be focused on God anymore. The relationship would be broken. The same thing happened to Peter when he was walking on water. I love that story. When Peter got off the boat, he did it because he was wrapped up in the excitement of his faith being rewarded. Everybody else on the ship was wondering, well, are we going to get clobbered? Is this storm going to eat us up? Peter remembered being faithless the last time there was a storm. This time he thought to himself, no, Jesus is going to come through. Yeah, I know he's not here, but it doesn't matter. He will be. And sure enough, there he was. Here came Jesus walking on the water. So Peter, his faith was on this high and so then he said, Lord, if it's your will, bid me to come out on the water with you. And Jesus said, come on. So Peter just hopped off the boat. You talk about strong faith. That's incredible. He walked on water, folks. Peter did. But the reason why he walked on water wasn't because he was trying to walk on water. He wanted to get to Jesus. 
He had his eyes fixed on him. His heart was pounding with excitement and joy and love. And he couldn't wait to get to him. He, he was wrapped up in the excitement. And then as he began to do that, he started looking, oh, wow, this is cool. I'm walking on water. And then he started focusing on the fact that he was walking on water and not focusing on Jesus anymore. And that's when he saw the waves. That's when he felt the winds. Then he began to sink. I mean, and then just then he went floundering and screamed, help me, Lord, save me. And of course, Jesus was right there to pick him right back up. He's, oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? See, if you keep your eyes on the desires, on the needs being met, because God will meet them. But if you're looking around for those needs to be met, and if you're keeping a tally, then you're going to begin to sink. You're going to, you're, you always will. You got to turn your back on it. You, you look towards Jesus. And that's what Jesus is getting into here. It says, let him deny himself. You know, that sounds scary. It sounds like Jesus is mad and he's being mean. No, he's not. You know, it's funny. He says, if you deny yourself here, you'll save your life there. You'll get the rewards. But folks, you'll also get it here. You delight yourself in the Lord. Watch for the excitement to start coming. Because the moment you tell God and, and really mean it, say, Lord, I love you. I don't care what you do. Then he starts working. 